Welcome to Man Up, the podcast by men, about men, and for men who want to be better fathers, husbands, leaders, and followers of Jesus. Today's topic, Shining the Light. Are you ready? Man up. Yes, sir! Welcome, welcome, my friends. I'm your host, Jared Bowman, and this is Man Up, your podcast with all of the information and encouragement that you need to be a better father, husband, leader, and follower of Jesus. We are a band of brothers. We are soldiers. We are comrades in arms. And we fight side by side, shoulder to shoulder, hand over hand, mile after mile, until each has helped the others attain the high calling of Jesus. Today, we are joined by my personal friend, fellow evangelist, and really dedicated kingdom worker, Brady Cook. I'll explain what I mean by that last thing in just a moment, but let's first ask, Brady, I know you're a little under the weather today, buddy, but how you doing? I'm on the tail end of the flu, but luckily there's nothing that can be contagious in this environment, so nobody should have to worry about thing here, but no, I'm good. I'm feeling good. Uh, talking about the gospel, talking about evangelism always fires me up, so I'm ready to get going. Yeah, as long as it's not a computer virus, I think we're okay. <laughs> well, I've got a Mac, so you shouldn't have to worry about that, but. Right. Yeah, I've got a PC because I got tired of paying for Macs, but I did love them when I had them. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, there you go. <laughs> but one of the things that, that I alluded to is Brady has got some really interesting things going on related to his work in the kingdom that are outside of evangelism. And one of the reasons why I wanted Brady on this episode is I wanted him to talk about a lectureship that he's got coming up this summer. It's a virtual Bible study. And it is focusing on the topic, as I understand it, of bringing people back together. Brady, tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about this, what's going on, how the people can find it, and also, why is this an important topic for right mm -hmm. now? So it's actually something we've done two years ago. So two years ago, right when COVID started, you know, everybody, I mean, literally the week after COVID hit, March 17th, that date is etched in my Everybody's kind of panicking. Nobody really knows what to do. People aren't able to go worship as they usually would, at least in the same capacity. So we decided to organize a virtual Bible summit and all keep it around this theme of how can coronavirus lead us to Christ? And we asked preachers from all over the country to record sermons, attack on the topic. And we ran this virtual Bible summit from 7 a.m. all the way to 7 p.m. And we had literally hundreds of people watch it. I think what that shows more than anything is the thirst that people had for spiritual renewal at that point. We had uh, several different people be a part of it. Mark Roberts was a part of it. I know he's been on your, has been on some other shows that you have. Chris Emerson was a part of it. And we wanted to do that this year because obviously the last two years have been pretty tumultuous for most people. And we wanted to have another virtual Bible summit and make it hopefully a, a bigger deal than it was even two years ago. But all build it around the idea of rebuilding our fellowship. We don't have to go into the details. I think most of your listeners are probably aware of it. But there's a lot of fracturing that went on with churches, mm -hmm. um, with communities, with families, people at odds with each other that never had any issues with each other beforehand. I, I believe pretty strongly that the fellowship that we have inside of God is one of the greatest blessings that we have on this earth. We really need to be able to lean on each other. And so this this whole lectureship for two days is going to be based around that. You're speaking in that. BJ Sype, who was on your podcast a few weeks ago, is going to be on that. And just a bunch of preachers and some everyday Christians are going to be on it. It's going to be two days, three sessions in the morning, three sessions in the afternoon, and then a live roundtable each night, both those nights. It's going to be a book that accompanies it. All of it will be free. You don't have to pay to be a part of it. It's going to be live streamed, even though the sessions will be recorded. It'll be streamed on our website which is uh, mydigitalevangelism.com. Mm -hmm. um, and then it'll also be on our Facebook page. And then it'll also be on YouTube, all three of those different areas. You have a consulting business that you run on the side to help churches use their websites in more productive ways for evangelism, that you do things like help them right. optimize for search engine, opt or that was a double there. <laughs> you help them with the search engine <laughs> optimization. You help them with right. getting a, a website together that is not just a standard stamped template like a lot of congregations mm -hmm. have, but something that really is directing the visitor to the website to what's special about that congregation. You're really coming at that business. I mean, you and I have had conversations about that uh, as well. You were really coming at mm -hmm. that business from the standpoint of how can we use the tools that are at our fingertips 
for evangelism? How do we get the website mm -hmm. involved in evangelism? How do we get social media involved in evangelism? How do we use these things that people are using every day to get the word of, of Christ in front of them? Tell us a little bit about that and tell us what are some things, before we get into our questions for, for this session, what are some things that you'd like to see churches doing better when it comes to using tools to really shine the light of the gospel? Oh, man, where do I begin? Well, <laughs> so beginnings, usually. there is, um, I think we've talked about this before, every preacher has a side hustle. And several years ago, I started one, which was sell on, selling on Amazon, e-commerce stores, Kindle publishing, those types of things. But what that, what that opened my eyes to was just how many things that, those those same tactics that we employ on a digital sphere can be applied to churches. And none of it is unscriptural by any stretch of the imagination. It is all about taking assets we already have and moving them in a more efficient way online. You know, the internet, when you think about it, is just a big content distribution system. It is a big filing cabinet of all these different, you know, content, you know, blogs, articles, YouTube videos, sermons, all these things that quite frankly, most people never read. I mean, if you go to any website, you know, you'll you'll have repository of hundreds of sermons, hundreds, thousands of blogs even. And I would put good money on the fact that 98% of those are never visited one time. And so what you have to do eventually is you have to ask yourself, what am I, what am I producing all this content for? Why am I posting it online if I'm not reaching anybody with it? And right. so search engine optimization, which is what you mentioned a second ago, is all about taking that content and helping it rank higher online. And so what we help churches do, our core business is building out websites that number one, don't look like every other website on the planet but also taking websites to make them rank higher in search results. I had a conversation the other day with a, with a preacher at a congregation, and he was like, well, we don't, you know, our, our website looks amazing. Why do we need to change it? I said, well, your website is on page nine, three pages behind church's chicken in search results. Whoa. So if somebody goes in and types churches near me, there's a better chance that they'll find church's chicken than they will find your church. And there's a couple of reasons why that's significant. Number one is that the number of, people that click on those search results diminishes pretty exponentially. I mean, the first three results get something like 60% of the traffic. The first one gets something like 30%. So by the time you get to page nine or wherever most of these churches are found on, nobody's clicking on it. You're talking about 0.0001%. And then once you get to the website, if it's not structured in a way that is user or visitor facing, then most people won't know what to do with that church. We've all seen those church websites that are just not useful. Like I, if I need to go to a website, I need to know what I need to do. Do I need to, do I need to contact you? Can I listen to a sermon? How do I find out information about this church? And so what we help churches do is the design element is secondary, in my opinion, to creating a visitor-focused website. A lot of churches, when they fill out, fill out their website, they're very quick to point out the things that they're against and not so quick to point out the things that they're for. Mm -hmm. We also help churches with social media to reach the 4 billion people that are using social media every single day or every single month, I'm sorry. We help churches with Facebook ads to help penetrate their local markets, Google ads, email marketing. A lot of churches are very passive when it comes to evangelism because they feel hamstrung by it. Well, what we do is we help show you all the ways online at least, and even from just a pure marketing perspective that you can to bring the gospel to the world around you. I wanted to have you on here to talk about individually, how do we become brighter lights? How do we get to the point where individually we as men become these tools for evangelism? But because this mm -hmm. is something that churches can take advantage of, Brady's not paying me to do this, but I'm going to get, I'm going to give him a free promo <laughs> here. Why don't you tell people how they can find you? Cause you may have piqued some interest there. So our websites that we, that we use, that's our, that's our business is Diakonos Marketing. That's D-I-A-K-O-N-O-S marketing.com. Um, it's a very simple page that doesn't go into too great detail about what we do, but that's okay because a lot of it needs to be discussed one-on-one -on -one anyways. But we do offer every church a free 15-minute consultation, free 15-minute discovery call. We'll hop on. I'll look at your website. We'll look at it together. We'll talk through what I believe are dozens of opportunities for every church. That's free of charge. And then if you decide to work with us, we'll talk about the terms from there. We've worked really hard to make our services very, very affordable for churches. And in a lot of ways, not much more than what people are already paying for websites. If that's not your cup of tea, if that's not what you're interested in at this point, we do have a website called mydigitalevangelism.com that has a steadily growing bevy of resources, blogs. Eventually, there'll be YouTube videos. Eventually, we will have our own podcast. We will have Jared on that as well. 
and then eventually we'll offer courses on how to build your own website to make it visitor facing, to optimize it for search engines and things like that. We're very, very excited. The future, in my opinion, is very bright. And that's one thing we always want to communicate to people is that there are way more opportunities to spread the gospel than sometimes we realize. I realize that sounded a lot like a commercial and Brady's not paying me anything for that. I, evidently, <laughs> I don't have this side hustle thing figured out very well because I'm giving away commercials. But yeah. the reason why I wanted you to talk about that is because it is something you do for churches, but it is also illustrative of exactly what we're talking about today, that you saw this need that wasn't just mm-hmm. stepping up behind a pulpit for evangelism. It wasn't just going and sitting down and having a Bible study, but there was a way for you to be engaged in evangelism other than your regular role as a preacher that was helping right. others be better at evangelism. And, right. and in, in your case, you're focused on churches, but in a lot of ways, we as preachers, mm-hmm. we try to develop others to come and and develop the skills that are necessary to share the gospel with people. I was thinking about my topic right. for your lectureship, and and I chose encouraging one another while it's still today. And how do we rebuild a community of believers? Again, not really focusing on what's divided us over the last couple of years, because it could have been COVID. It could have been, for some people, it, it, it might have been a major doctrinal right. issue that a congregation needs to heal from. But a lot of congregations today are in this place where they are having difficulty coming back together and being one and being a community. And before you can really start sharing the gospel, you, I mean, you can share the gospel, but before you're going to really have that invitation sink in, there's got to be a people that they're invited to be among that feels welcoming. Another one of our mutual friends, Kenny Embry, is having a very similar mm-hmm. event later in the summer. I know his is structured a little bit differently. There's uh there's, there's yeah. he's got a lot of, his is much his is much bigger and more intense than mine. Mine's relatively simplistic in comparison. Well, but I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about how both of these assignments that I've been given to speak on in these lectureships, the passage that I think I'm going to start with in both of these is, is Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 15, where Ezekiel's been commissioned by God to go speak to the people. He says, I, mm. I went to the river Kibar, and I sat where they sat. And right. that idea of before we can become liked, We've got to realize that we don't stand apart from the world, but we are really part of the world. I mean, we're not like the world, but right. we're part of the world that we live in. And I thought about how much the Bible says about encouragement and the work of being encouragers and being together. And even some passages like the Sermon on the Mount have that secondary idea of encouragement where Jesus is telling them, look, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God or the sons of God. Mm-hmm. And he calls them to be light, and he calls them to be salt. As congregations, how do we do better at the task of forming real community and restoring that sense of fellowship between brethren? And what are some areas that men can work on as individuals to do that? Man, that's if you find out the answer to that question, let me know, because I've got what works for me and what I've been working on personally, but it's, you know, everybody's got their own way to do it. I think ultimately, anytime you're building up community, you have to realize with where you, you have to think about where you can do better first. And we all have our little cliques. We all have our passions and things like that. But it's ultimately not about, if you're forming community, it's not about what, what you want as much as serving other people. You know, there's a, there's a great book. This actually is a commercial. There's a great book called How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And the, the short version of that book is, is that if you want to win friends, you have to be interested in what they are. And that carries over the, the, the fellowship applications or fellowship realm so many ways, because, you know, we all sit in church buildings, we all have our cliques, people that we identify with, people that we go fishing with or whatever it may be. But there's always that one person, you know, that's off to the side that maybe is a widower or maybe has never been married, you know, or maybe you know, is very shy by, maybe it's a shut-in or somebody. It's something that nobody really has anything in common with. Right. And I say that, obviously, they have something in common with somebody, but they're usually the loner. And I think being intentional about going to just talk with them and starting small with the conversation and finding that common ground. You know, like you, I started off when I started preaching in a lot of these small churches. And you'd go to some of these small churches, and 30% of the congregation was widow ladies that sat on the back and they all sat back there and talked. Those were always the first people I walked in and sat next to. 
because those people, they have stories to tell. They want to talk to you. They are just ready-made friends. And I think if we realized that the relationships that we can form with some of these people that are marginalized for one reason or another, in a lot of ways, they can be some of the best relationships we ever form. I think that's where we really need to start is by seeing people that have those opportunities laid out for us, but also just being intentional. You know, some, so much relationships is in our minds is about what we get out of it. It needs to be about what we give. And that has application to marriage and, you know, jobs and all these other things that we do. So I, that's, that's where I would start with it. You, know, you mentioned the Dale Carnegie book and you talked about how it is that mm -hmm. that essentially boils down to, look, if you're going to win friends and influence people, you've got to be first an interesting person and you've got to be interested in what they're interested in. It's a little right. like you have to exactly. be friendly in order to have friends kind of thing. But it goes beyond that. It, it goes beyond to developing a something about you that forms that nucleus of a community. The reasons why we see so much struggle today is because we've spent the last several years emphasizing what divides us from each other and right. what we don't have in common. And the search for the search for fellowship, the, the search for community begins with finding what you have in common. And and I right. think about that and I think about Paul using that illustration in First Corinthians twelve about the body and, right. and the, the eye can't say to the to the, the the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need any, I don't need you because you're not as good as I am or the the eye can't say to the ear, right. I don't need you because you're not as good as I am. Mm -hmm. And part of forming community has got to be, before we start shining light and before we start trying to call people to Jesus, we need to realize that mm -hmm. we are all, at the end of the day, unprofitable servants. I'm not right. a special Christian because I am a preacher, mm -hmm. a podcaster, and a YouTuber. You aren't a special right. Christian because you have these things that you do on the side that you're doing for churches, you're just interested right. in seeing congregations grow. You're just interested in seeing individuals grow. And, and I have that same interest. That's why I do Man Up. Right. That's why I do Biblically Speaking. I, <laughs> I do them because I want to see them grow. And I, I've had people reach out to me and say, can I support you? And, but if we don't have that interest in seeing community form, mm -hmm. then we aren't going to form community. And the only way to form community is to yeah. find others who are interested. And they may be, as you were just saying, the, the widows or the widowers who nobody else talks to because you've got to be patient and sort of wade through right. some stories. And you're going to have to nod your head a lot because you don't really know where this is going. Yeah. But showing them that they're important is more important to you than getting to the end of the story quickly. Right. Having that community has got to be the nucleus for what we build our fellowship mm -hmm. around. And ultimately, that's what Jesus tells the apostles when he says, love one another as I've loved you. Right. And just as importantly, it, it stems from an attitude of, I genuinely love these people. I mean, there's, there's so many times in Scripture where Jesus, it says, and there's one especially that I'm thinking of, where when Jesus interacts with a leper, for instance, it just says casually that he reaches out and touches him. You know, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us who shake hands on an everyday basis, but for a leper who hasn't been felt a physical touch in possibly years, that means a lot to them. And it certainly would have meant a lot to the people standing around him because this is a guy that's ostracized. And there seems to be, in a lot of ways, a snowball effect. You know, if you've got your own circle of friends and you go reach out and talk to somebody else, almost always that group is going to follow you and talk to that person as well. Right. But it all stems from a genuine love for people. There's, there's passages in Jeremiah Ezekiel, and there's one mentioned at the beginning of the feeding of the 5,000 where it talks about compassion. Jesus sees the, the 5,000, and he says he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It all begins with the genuine love for your fellow man and the idea that nobody needs to fall through the cracks. You know, the parables of the lost coin, the parables of the lost sheep, the parable of the prodigal son, these parables exemplify in so many ways Jesus's love for something that in many ways, most people would just forgo. Right. You know, if you ask 10 people out of 10, or if you ask, you know, a dozen people, would you have gone out, would you have stood there watching for your, for your son to come back? Would you sweep the entire house for a coin? Would you leave the 99 to go after the, the hundredth? Most people would say no, because you don't want to lose what you have. 
But what Jesus showed in that passage is that every single person is important. It doesn't matter if they're a part of your group or not. It doesn't matter why they're lost. You just need to go find them. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think to themselves, well, the gospel is just dead. People don't have a love for God. People don't have a love for scripture. They would if they knew about it. And so compassion and giving people the benefit of the doubt, reaching out to people that are ostracized, that is what the gospel is about at its core. Mm -hmm. Building up your community is just an extension of that. If I love this person sitting next to me, not because of what they can do for me, but because they're a person, then why wouldn't I go reach out to them? You know, I think that's, I think that's what we need to focus on is developing that genuine love for other people. Part of developing that genuine love. Mm -hmm. And this sounds trite, but it is the genuineness of that love. Too mm -hmm. often we take this approach that we see people as as opportunities to expand the kingdom or right. Target. yeah, targets. Yeah. yeah there you yeah. go. Cold calling, you know, fill the, fill the yeah. funnel. I can't tell you how many <laughs> conversion strategies I've heard tools use this system. I, I as a preacher, <laughs> it, it drives me crazy when somebody says that use this system yeah. to convert people. <laughs> the system is yeah. there. Love one another as I have loved you. Do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith, that love your neighbor yeah. as yourself. That's the system. And too mm -hmm. often what we do when we think about people as leads or we think about them as targets or we think about them as, as funnel filler, and then when they fall out of the bottom that we don't have any interest in them at all anymore rather than continuing to... Right to talk to them and encourage them and try to be this influence for them, then what we end up doing is showing them we didn't have any real interest in them at all. We were just essentially right. building a multi-level marketing plan. And right. I think the genuineness mm -hmm. of affection, both mm -hmm. for the people and for God's word, is something right. that maybe we've seen over the last couple of years that we didn't really have mm -hmm. down as well as we thought we did, that we thought, hey, you know, I've got doctrine nailed down because you know, I've got the truth. Mm -hmm. you know, denominations don't have the truth. We have the truth. Right. But we're a little bit maybe like Ephesus. We know how to prosecute the claims of false doctrine. We know how to find, go to scripture and find out what's true. But do we love the truth? Do we love Jesus? Do we, yeah. do we love the people that we're interacting with? And Maybe that's one of the things that mm -hmm. we ought to spend some time figuring out is what does it really mean to love people? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not enough just to love the truth. It's enough. It, it has to be about a love for people to come to the truth. Right. And you're right. I mean, so much of, so much of marketing has a dirty word because it does, it does talk about funnel fillers or it talks about, you know, a lot of, a lot of church marketing agencies will talk about getting people inside the church building because then your, your quote tithing will go up. And obviously we don't use tithing in a new Testament sense, but contributions. You know, if we can get more people in your church, then your contributions will go up. Well, that's not the end game. The end game is not that the contribution goes up. The end game is not that you attract, you know, people that make over 150K that are white, that live in suburban America, that have disposable income. I mean, it's, it's about people that honestly even have nothing to offer us. They'll never lead singing. They will never contribute more than a dime. to the, It doesn't matter though, because they still have a soul. And those are the people we need to go find. And honestly, those oftentimes are the best relationships we'll ever form because most people never gave them a chance. We need to give them a chance. You know, yeah. that's, man, it, some of my best friends I've ever had are people that nobody would ever talk to. You know, people thought were weird. People never wanted to hang out with. You know, you're a lot of that way. It's just, you know, people think you're weird and just, <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. But, you know, hey. I mean, it's a, it's a, no, I'm just no, I own, it's about I totally own that. Dude. I totally own that. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. I've got, but you know, it's past. It's seeing past the the externals and just seeing people for who they truly are. And I, I think you're right. It's not about what they can give you. It's about what you can give them. That's what relationship building is all about. You know, right now, Brady, I've got 18 Darth Vaders in my 19 Darth Vaders in my office. So I think I qualify <laughs> there. That. But it, it is I mean, that's all right. about We're all seeing weird. past some of those things. I mean, that's that's really the mm -hmm. whole point when when the Pharisees challenge Jesus on, you know, why are you eating with the sinners and the tax collectors? He's like, who need? Yeah. Is it the well, the people who don't think they're yeah. sick that needs a physician? I mean, I'm sitting close to home to you, Mr. Sicko. But or is, 
Is it the ones who are ill? <laughs> we, we need to perceive the need of people and not, yeah. a, not the intrinsic value that they bring to us. And like you said, a, a lot of, that, that's what you see denominations really focused on is how many people are in the church building? How many people are, are, are contributing? And what we've got to be focused on, if we're really claiming to love the truth, we're going to shine that light on our love for our brethren mm -hmm. and our love for every single person, even if they are the poorest of the poor, then right. they have brought something to us by becoming part of this fellowship of believers. Because ultimately what we bring right. to each other in Hebrews 10 is encouragement to, to love and good works. And yeah, you know, I was thinking about a conversation I had with David Osteen the other day about how they have in a congregation that's about, I think it's like, it may be 70-30 English to Spanish speaking, or it may be 50-50, but they're able to be one congregation and yeah, they're, they're Spanish speaking brethren or yeah. using the hearing implements sometimes. And sometimes David gets up, they, they switch. David will get up and preach in Spanish yeah. and the English speaking brethren have to use the hearing assist devices. <laughs> or sometimes he'll say a line in Spanish and then turn around and say it in English. But they yeah. do that, and yet they have this idea, hey, we are one. We're, we may not fully understand each mm -hmm. other. He says, it amazes me when I see a, a Spanish-speaking brother and an English-speaking brother come in. Neither one of them speaks the other's language, but the first thing they do when they see each other is walk over and hug each other and say, I'm glad to see you. And Man, isn't that a beautiful oh, yeah, thing? It totally is. I mean, it, the church is the one place in the world, in the universe, where... You can, you can come from any background. It doesn't matter where you come from. And the thing that unites you is your love for God. I mean, we've, you've traveled, I've traveled. We've go to these places. You don't know anything about the area, but you walk into that church building and you feel immediately accepted by these people. And it, they don't know who you are. They don't care where you came from. I love the church for that. Oh, and yeah. it sickens me to see churches that split because of really, really, really superficial reasons. So we need to be intentional about building that community up. I mean, the people that you go to church with should be the closest people in your life. And if they're not, then what's the reason for that? You know, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's me, but we need to uncover that and fix it. Absolutely. Because they should be the closest people to us. Absolutely. And, and that's, yeah. it is such a beautiful thing. Now, I know you listen to the Man Up mm -hmm. podcast because you, you message me about it every mm -hmm. once in a while, but I don't know how caught up to date you are. But last week I talked with Edwin Crozier. And not mm -hmm. the most recent episode I did with him that it was a two-parter, but the one right before that, he was talking about how one of the big struggles he sees today in the church is the struggle that we have with individualism and not individuality. I'm not talking right. about, about it's wrong for your kid to dye their hair purple. I mean, hey, if you're in college and you want to dye your hair purple, <laughs> fine. You're married and your spouse doesn't care if you want to dye your hair yeah, purple. Whatever. Fine. Now my wife's going to hang me, <laughs> hang me for that yeah. because she's going to say, I want to dye my hair purple. <laughs> and you know what? In Oregon, maybe she can get away. <laughs> but the idea of the individualism that I want to be part of right. body, but I want to stand apart from it. I want to be recognized. Yeah. And in some cases, our individualism is a little strange. I mean, you look at first Corinthians chapter one yeah. and their individualism was based on, I stand closer to Apollos than I stand to Paul, or I stand closer to Paul than yeah. I to Apollos or Peter or Christ, and yeah. and we all have this desire to be recognized. And I think mm -hmm. it's become a real struggle, particularly presently in the church, where things like politics are so quick to divide us. Right. And we don't necessarily see ourselves as a part of the body, that I wish we could get people right. to, to the Ephesians 4 way of looking at things, that, that I hold you together and you hold me together and we're each pushing each other up toward Christ and lifting each other up all the time so that we're only thinking about where does Jesus want me to be. We're really pressing toward unity, not Jew and Gentile and figuring out how we operate together, but we are in Christ, and those things that we used to be are totally behind us in a Philippians 3 kind of way. I've left everything to gain right. the excellency of Christ. But what do you think contributes to this desire for individualism, and how is that impacting our light as we try to share the gospel with people. You know, I think there's a natural competitiveness in us. You know, as, a, as a preacher, if you, of course, it, it happens every single gospel meeting is you go to the back and somebody tells you how great that guy did. I was literally at um, a church a couple of years ago 
And I was filling in for the preacher that was out sick. And it's a small country congregation not far from here. I love the people. Very, very, very much preached there on occasion for the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. But they had just had a gospel meeting with Chris Emerson, who you know really well, obviously. Oh, yeah. Chris had been on the program. And get to the back, get, get to the back 15 minutes afterwards. And <laughs> this guy there goes, and I literally, the pulpit is still warm for me being up there. And this guy goes, man, that Chris Emerson is just the best preacher I've ever heard in my life. And I'm like, I mean, you could have at least waited till the next week to tell me that. So, <laughs> so I think that there is a, I think there's a natural competitiveness to it when it comes to that. If somebody, you know, becomes a song leader, I want to be a better song leader or whatever it may be. And I think there's a First Corinthians 12 component in that. But ultimately, I think it's the desire to be recognized. You know, we, we all are looking for validation at a certain standpoint, but the catch-all to, or the, the sticking point in is, is the recognition by God is not enough. Mm-hmm. You know, and over over, we see in Scripture the fact that God sees you. You know, there's passages in the Psalms that are very individualistic. Put my tears in a bottle. Are they not written in your book? You know, there are passages that talk about how God sees if a sparrow falls to the ground, you know, Jesus knows about it. Sure. But we don't internalize that. Mm-hmm. And instead of seeking the validation that comes from God, we seek the validation that comes from others. We, I, knew of, I literally knew of a guy who left the church because he said he had put so much effort into song leading and nobody ever said anything to him about it. He didn't think anybody noticed. Now, maybe that's a failing on our part to not say, well, he left. Yeah. I mean, that's probably the shadow reason for it, but that's at least what he told me when I had a conversation with him about it is he was extremely discouraged. Now that's a hard issue. I mean, if you're, if you're banking your salvation on how much people recognize you, but I think that is also indicative of the fact that maybe we don't appreciate each other as much as we should, but I think it all points back to that central idea that a lot of us want to be validated immediately by the people around us. Mm-hmm. We don't want to wait for God to do it. That's a hard desire for us to get out of. Um, so that that's where I think it comes from. And I think the solution to that is very simple. You just have to have your faith that you've done your best, even if it, nobody else notices it, that God sees it, and that's all that really matters. So let me ask this as a springboard question to to the next question that we're going to get to. We know we struggle with individualism, and I'm not even going to expound on what you said because I think you did a brilliant job of it. We struggle with this idea for individual recognition. We struggle with this idea of competition. We struggle with this idea of, of you mentioned, like the inferiority complex. We do struggle with the sense of competitiveness and individualism. But individually, mm-hmm. we're also called to be light. I mean, we would be the first people, you and I, to say, look, right. being light doesn't mean that you're part of a good church. It means you're going out there and you're shining the light. How do we balance those two things? Right. So my mom uh, always told me that the Bible says to let your light shine, don't shine your light. Okay. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. It's not about me shining and being deliberate and letting my light, but letting the beauty of Jesus as we sing be seen in me. And uh, ultimately, that's far better than anything I could have. I think that also gives us a lot of comfort in a lot of ways, and I think it will always be that way. You think about where Jesus goes in the Sermon on the Mount about letting your light Mm -hmm. shine. He starts with Beatitudes, right? And then he immediately starts turning in this direction of, you have heard it said. But then the undercurrent there is, this is what God really expects. He uses the example of murder, but don't don't be angry. Mm -hmm. Don't commit adultery. Don't lust after a woman that's not your wife. They'd heard it said, right. if you're not happy with your wife, give her a certificate of divorce. And Jesus says, that's not how God intended marriage. Or, or love your enemies, or <laughs> yeah. eye for an eye, or, or all of those things that they had been taught what was easy and what was palatable. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times being light means realizing I need to change where I'm at. Yeah. What kind of things would you say that most people today, most men today, would do well to really look at where they're at? I think a lot of men would do really well to look at how vulnerable we need to be. And that's what BJ is going to preach on during our lectureship. Uh-huh. But I, there are a lot of men that I know that simply will not admit when they're wrong. There's a lot of women too, but to be fair, but there's, there's a lot of men that just will not admit when they're wrong. And whether you're talking about your relationship with your spouse or your kids or your employer or your church, you have to be willing to ask for help. And we put up these walls. And that's, that's ultimately what a lot of, you know, those things in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 about, you know, not, 
not just it's not enough just not to commit adultery. You have to not also think about that. You have to guard your heart because the intent of Christianity goes deeper than just external actions. It's about who you are as a person. And I think a lot of people put up walls because they don't want people to see the real core of them. But if you're going to build relationships, if you're going to have deep relationships, and if you're going to grow, you have to be willing to put those things down. So I think what a lot of people do, what a lot of men do, and self-included at various times, is we keep people at arm's length because that's, that's how we feel that we're safest, as if people can't see our soul. When in reality, that's probably where the, where the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You know, Satan walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And the person that they always go after, a, a lion, the, the target that a lion always has is not the one at the front in the middle of the pack. It's always the outlier that's str- struggling off to the side, that's weak, that's crippled, that's falling by the wayside. That's who the lion gets. The lion will never go after the whole pack. And if you're keeping people at arm's length because you refuse to be vulnerable, if you refuse to have relationships with people where they can see your soul, then you will always be that deer that's on the outside of the pack waiting for the lion to come after you. And it's just the most dangerous place to be. And I've seen person after person fall, whether they realized it or not, I've seen person after person fall, especially men, because we just, we're just too proud to let people in. Mm-hmm. I think that's I, that's the lesson, and not to take away from your sermon at all, that's the lesson that I'm probably the most interested in hearing because BJ is a master of vulnerability, as you heard on your podcast a yeah. few weeks ago. I mean, he is nothing if not vulnerable. Yeah, I have, I have no and sense I, of competition think... with BJ when it comes to that. He is. <laughs> well, he yeah, is, I guess. I mean, he. It's ironic talking about competition. He yeah. is. If there is a competition there, it's got to be between him and Keith Stonehart because they both just lay it on the line. Yeah. This is what I struggled mm-hmm. with. This is how it almost broke me. This is how I overcame it. And yeah. I think the vulnerability on maybe both sides of the issues, admitting the things that we struggle with, and then like those two men do, revisiting, and I'm so glad I know them. And and, and honestly, mm-hmm. and Kenny Embry says the same thing when you listen to, to Balancing the Christian Life, but and you talked about getting ready to start a podcast just a few minutes ago, but mm-hmm. that's been the probably the biggest blessing for me as a podcast is getting to yeah. know guys like that that I sort of knew through Facebook. And, okay, yeah, I know them. They're, yeah. they're Facebook buddies, but now to really have it's, interacted with mm-hmm. them, it, cha- it changes that dynamic so much. Can we apply that same lesson to our relationship with our wives and our children? Can that vulnerability make us better husbands and fathers and at the same time, build stronger families? I don't think that there's probably any more of a lesson that we can learn than that, that will, that will drive us closer. You know, you, I, I don't know what most families are like. I mean, I, I actually work from home and my wife works from home. And so we're around each other, you know, 16 hours a day when we're not sleeping, I guess we're right, right there next Same. to each other then too, but we communicate all day and there's nowhere I go. She doesn't know where I'm at. There's nowhere she goes that I don't know where she's at, who she's with. I mean, it's just a natural byproduct of our life together, but even in that type of environment, it's still possible for you to not even be close. Yeah. I mean, you can just be roommates at that point if you wanted to be. I think the only, I think the only way for you to have those relationships with your, with your spouse is by, is by being vulnerable. You know, I, I'm a big believer in that, in that, you know, people may come to, you know, not to take it from the family, which I know what we're talking about to a church context, but I, I'm a big believer that churches grow not based on doctrine, although obviously, obviously that's the case. You have to have doctrine. Mm-hmm. But a lot of churches make grow because people feel accepted. And what makes people feel accepted is when people are close with each other. Well, you, you, that closeness comes about by virtual vulnerability. You know, are, do I feel able to talk to somebody? You know, when I talk to my kids and I know that I've made a mistake, am I humble enough to tell them that I'm sorry and to explain to them why I did? And here's the real kicker. Even when they don't notice that I've made a mistake, my wife or my kids don't notice that I made a mistake. Am I open enough to tell them this is what I did wrong and I need your help to get through it? That's how we all grow. I don't know how, I don't, I don't know of any family that has any type of depth if they're not keeping each other or holding themselves accountable to each other. And you do that at least in part through vulnerability. That's my opinion. And that's a brilliant answer. That And I think you're right. I think that vulnerability may be the most important lesson for sort of turning the tide of marriage back in the way it ought to go. It, mm-hmm. It's sad to say, but marriage is a statistic in our country, and people in the church are not immune to that. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah. there are relationships that are tarnished by sin. I understand that. I understand that things happen that shouldn't happen in marriages. I get that. Mm-hmm. But sometimes the marriage can be saved if both parties are willing to be vulnerable with each other, talk about what really right. got them in that position, not shifting the blame from one person to the other, but recognizing that if we're not both giving 100% to the marriage and the marriage is ultimately failing, mm-hmm. and the same is true with our relationship right. with our kids, that if our kids mm-hmm. don't see us willing to say, hey, dad messed up, I whether it was mm-hmm. our intention to or not, I messed up as your dad, and I'm not going to get all the balls and strikes right. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that as a as a cop out for hey, you got to forgive me because I'm fallible. But I'm letting you know that mm-hmm. this is not the only time this is going to happen, and you are right to call me on it when it happens. That and having that yeah. dialogue and being able to have that dialogue when they're young. Because if they're, if you're not allowed to have it dialogue mm-hmm. when they're young, when they're teenagers and they see that inconsistent you see in you, it's going to be a whole different mm-hmm. conversation. You know, I've I've given a lot of thought. My my kids are pretty young. My kids are six, four, and two. And I, as that's they get not, older, I realize that's not their that height. That's, that's their ages. <laughs> six yeah, four. Yeah, like, they're six. I'm sorry, six. Yeah. Hopefully, you don't have one uh, six four. Uh, there Grady, or he's going to eat you out of house at home. Well, he's not. He's not. He's not far behind. I'm six four, and his grandpa is six seven. So I'm sure that day's coming. Are you but six four? no, I didn't you know, tolerate me. But I didn't think mm-hmm. on a good day, if if I'm wearing the right shoes. But my kids, when I know that the teenagers are not far behind, they're far in the future. And I I've thought a lot about you know what happens if my kids are struggling with something, and the over the the question that keeps coming to my mind is will they will they feel comfortable enough to talk to me about it? You know if they're struggling with this, well if they're really having this issue at school, if they're being bullied, you know, if they're struggling with questions about sexuality, you know, whether sexual immorality or, you know, even they're confused about certain things that will they feel comfortable to talk to me about that. And I feel a lot of my responsibility right now as a father is to lay that groundwork so that when they get to the age of 13, 14, 15, their first instinct when they come across a really troubling idea is I need to talk to my dad about that. I think we get to that point later in life, you know, when we see our, when we see our parents, and for some reason, it always happens when our parents start to get older. You know, they move into a nursing home. Maybe they are in a wheelchair or something like that. They're they're not the strong, virile father that we saw when we were kids. Right. And maybe that physical vulnerability opens them and me up to the idea that I can talk to them because they're not going to beat me over the head with a with a baseball bat or something. But but we need to get to that point earlier in life as fathers. Right where we lay the groundwork for our kids to where they feel comfortable enough to talk to us about it. Even if they don't, they still feel like they can. And that's what I work on every single day with my kids, telling them that I'm sorry, telling them where I made mistakes, telling them that I love them and that I'm proud of them. And also being real about my own, you know, my own stuff. Think about the conversation Jesus had with Peter on the night of his crucifixion. I mean, Jesus tells Peter, who's arguably the most arrogant of the entire group and the one who is most foolhardy, he thinks that he, there's no way he'll fall. He says, Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not mm-hmm. fail. And the key in that is that he says, but when you've returned, you'll strengthen your brother. Yeah. There is a, there's a strength that you gain from being vulnerable, from falling and getting back up. And, you know, I'd, somebody made a great point about, I think, I can't remember if it's first or second Peter, where it talks about Peter specifically addresses Jesus as the chief shepherd of our souls. And that statement is written in a way as if he was a sheep that had gone astray. Yeah, first Peter five. You know, yeah, that's what it is. It's it is there's a there's a strength that we gain from being vulnerable, from yeah. falling and coming back up. And if all we ever do is fall, but we don't allow other people to help build us up, then then how do we grow, you know? And we need to we need to lean on each other for those times. Our kids are much smarter than we give them credit for. They can point out things to us about how we can grow in so many ways. Yeah, so springboarding off of what you just said there, I mean, there, there's a very, there's a very superhero trope to what you just said. That it's not whether mm-hmm. you fall, but whether you rise again. I mean, I, I think we've all heard that before. <laughs> yeah. You might as well have said, "With yeah. great power comes great responsibility." <laughs> yeah, but I'm trying to stay away too much from uh, there the cliches. You go. But hey, they're cliches for a reason, yeah. right? That's right. But the stereotypical archetype of the male hero today. Mm-hmm. Is dark and brooding. I mean, even even the brightest of heroes 
in recent yeah. times has been portrayed as dark and brooding. I mean, I, Superman's probably the brightest hero you yeah. got. And he's, you know, the last few outings, extremely dark, extremely brooding. Is this right. a godly model? Three-part question. Is this a godly model? How is this affecting congregations today? And based on that archetype, what things do you see when you walk into a congregation that are sort of the the make or break attributes for you? If you see this going on, then you know that congregation is in trouble. If you see this going on, then there's a chance that they may thrive and survive. So I, you know, with that dark brooding, you know, male archetype is this is this belief every time that there's something stewing beneath the surface. And this, once again, like we talked about this hyper-individualism where nobody knows what I'm going through. Obviously, Superman is the perfect example of that. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Right. My favorite superhero is Spider-Man. Always has been since my I read my dad's Spider-Man comics from the 60s. There, there's a sense that you're alone in the world and that you are the only person that knows what it's like to go through what you're going right. through. And people carry that same sense of ego into the church all the time. They say, well, nobody knows what it feels like to struggle with pornography because... You know, I don't ever talk about it with anybody. And then you have somebody like BJ comes on and talks about it openly. And you're like, wow, this is a much bigger deal. And so that, that archetype is a horrible model. Now there is a sense in which you do need as a father to protect your children from things. Obviously I don't, I don't talk with my kids about Russia and Ukraine and that type of stuff. Cause there's, there's no sense in bringing that up with them, but things that apply to their life, like COVID I'll talk about yeah. with them. You know, this is why we do this. This is why we wear masks, that type of stuff. But there is a sense in which you need to protect your family from things, but not at the expense of your humanity. And I oftentimes will see churches that I'll walk in and the elders, to me, a lot of it begins and ends with leadership. That's just my position on a mm -hmm. lot of things. And I'll walk into a church building and the elders are very businesslike. They always talk about, like, they always talk about things in terms of ROI, or they talk about in terms of efficiency or management tips right. and things like that. And if an eldership is so concerned with efficiency that they lose the heart behind things, then that church is doomed to fail. If a church is, if an eldership is determined that they're going to take on the work of the deacons in addition to the work of an elders, well, then that means the eldership work won't get done. That church is doomed to mm -hmm. fail. The one key that I always have seen is what, is what Paul told Timothy, which is you equip the saints for ministry. It's not a one-man show. The churches that I've always seen succeed are the ones who make it a community effort. Yeah. Think about the church 10, 20, 50 years uh -huh. from now. I did a sermon last year called The Death of a Church. And one of the points that I tried to make was is that the church that, that, I, was, that I was born at, literally where my, my parents went when I was born, that church is no longer here. And we had the opportunity to visit it before they closed the doors up. And it's a church that used to seat 300 people, and now it seats all of 15. Mm -hmm. And that's the reality for any church. The way that you get to that point is by not thinking about the future, yeah. by trying to be businesslike and trying to make one person the standard. I heard, I had a preacher say one time, great advice. He said, my job as a preacher is to make my role dispensable. If I can leave, somebody else can come in and the church can keep trucking yep. along then that's, that's where I need to be. The cult of personality will kill churches. You have to have a congregation where everybody buys in. I, I look right? at the congregation that was the one where I spent most of my life before I moved out on my own. It was the, the congregation where I was taught the gospel. And it's Southside in Pasadena. Mm -hmm. They had the same evangelist for more than 40 years. And yeah. Yeah. they have continued. In fact, I'm interviewing him tomorrow. They've continued with the, the, I said the young man, he's my age. <laughs> so he's a, so, yeah, he's a young man, <laughs> yeah. but they have continued. Yeah, he is a young without man. Without missing a beat. Now, of course, yeah. you know, Bubba's been there for 25 years already, but mm -hmm. they yeah. continued without missing a beat because even though mm -hmm. the man who was their evangelist was, in a lot of people's minds, larger than life, he, yeah, he is. You know, D never mm -hmm. made it about himself. It was never about yeah. him. And I think that that's one of the things that whether we're talking about as fathers or husbands or evangelists or, or Christians, mm -hmm. that when the focus of our work becomes us, then we aren't building anything yeah. good. So rapid fire. Mm -hmm. All right, Brady. So three lessons. Just set your spiritual AR-15 for three round bursts. That what, are, <laughs> what are three lessons you hope your children know 
about living for Jesus before they go into the world. That it's practical, that it is loving to its core, and that it is trying to think of the best one for this third one. Probably that it explains everything. <clears throat> it, it, it answers every question. Okay. Even people that claim it doesn't, it does everything. So it's practical. It's really about love and it gives mm -hmm. meaning to things. What are you doing right. to try to teach them those lessons right now? I mean, you mentioned they're six, four and two wills eight. What can I, as mm -hmm. a father, what can you as a father be doing to try to teach those three lessons? We try to talk honestly about current events, things that are happening. You know, if the and I say current events, I don't mean news. I mean things that happen in their school. Sure. My my kids are old enough now that they're asking questions about stuff we do in church. Why do we sing? Why do we go to Bible class? What did you study in Bible class? And how you know? I'll ask them. You know, what what kids in school can you, you know, who's your best friend and what do they like and why do they like it and you know, do y'all talk about church? I mean, it's really just me just about asking questions at this mm -hmm. stage. Not too penetrative. I don't want to annoy sure. them, but being involved in their life to the point where we can have those conversations. Sure. I mean, we homeschool Will and we have the same conversations with him. That, you know, let's let's yeah. talk about what's going on, what you're seeing, what your friends are doing, the kind of language they're using. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we'll come home yeah. from a shopping mall and he'll say, hey, dad, did you see this? And it's something that he wants to process. Yeah. I, I mean, we were, I've told the story on this channel, on this podcast a number of times, but you know, Will has learned by watching me, I didn't ever try to teach him this, but by watching me to avert his eyes when he walks, you know, past a lingerie shop in the mall. And, yeah. but the other day, somebody was wearing something in the mall and he had, that was, might as well have been lingerie. And I saw them too. Mm -hmm. And he immediately looked at me as, okay, what's the cue when somebody's actually wearing the clothes in the store we don't look at <laughs> that, I mean, I won't even yeah. describe for our audience what it was because it, it's almost indecent to describe. No, yeah. <clears throat> you could yeah. tell he wanted to know what's the social cue on this. And we had some discussions about yeah. things like that because mm -hmm. he wanted to know, you know, what's the parameter? What does mm -hmm. God want from me when I see somebody actually wearing that stuff and it's not a mannequin in the store? Yeah. So mm -hmm. how about that same question for churches? What are three things that churches can and should be doing to, to bring people back together and to really find this unity? I think the first thing people, churches need to do is listen. We're big fans of talking. We don't do as much listening as we should. Hey, I've got a podcast. Um, I think secondly is, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think secondly is, is meet them where they are okay. instead of ramming down these points, I mean, I can't tell you how many conversations I've been with people where they say, well, you're the church that doesn't have musical instruments. Well, yeah, you're right. But can we can talk about whatever you want to first, mm -hmm. you know, and we'll get to that down the road. And we can talk about that too, if they feel like it. But I think the third thing we can do is be less against things and more for things. You know, it, there's a reason why when you go on most church websites, they talk about, we don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Well, that leaves a bad taste to yeah. people's mouth because people need to associate things like grace and mercy. With the church, you know, Jesus talks in Matthew 23, you tithe mint and anise and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. But the key of that verse is that he says, these are the things you should have done without leaving the others right. undone. It takes both of those components. And too much, too many times we focus on one instead of the other. And denominationalism harps a lot on grace and mercy and not so much on the law, you know, the law in the New Testament sense. And we tend to focus on doctrine and not so much on grace and mercy. And I think we need to be more for things instead of against things. So. A young man that you know, and this is the mm -hmm. hypothetical section. I always like to say names are withheld or changed right. to protect the innocent, and in some cases, stupid. <laughs> but a young man that you know is in open rebellion. He says, and I quote, I hate organized religion. And he begins to make a bunch of subjective claims about churches being a source of ill he says really foolish things like more people have been killed in the name of Christianity than any other mass murderer in history. You can tell he's taking all of this from the cultural influences that are around him. Assuming he might listen to you based on some kind of interpersonal relationship. Mm -hmm. How are you going to let your light shine before that young man? What are you going to say? 
I think the first thing you have to do, and you probably should do with this with everything, is just to probably ask him why he he thinks that. I mean, that's probably a really simple answer. Why do you you know why do you? Yeah, think let's that? unpack this. Guy. A lot of people will. Yeah, let's let's figure that out. He's probably not too wrong when he says that more people have been killed by virtue of religion than they have anything else. I mean, there's been a lot of unnecessary violence and wars in the world as a result of that. And I, so I think acknowledging that reality is a big step because I think one of the big things that people who say that believe is that we're just blind to that reality. And, and the truth is we're not. I mean, any study on the Crusades will show you or any kind of Catholic Inquisition or any of that type of stuff will show you that there's been numerous genocides in the name of organized religion. So he's not wrong in that. But I think what they need to realize is that which is something they probably understand is that humans are flawed. And instead of, instead of saying that this is the worst institution that's ever been known to man, and I don't want to be a part of that, I think acknowledging that you can be a contributor to it being better is a big part of that. Notice that nowhere in that question that you just asked is any acknowledgement that God isn't real. Uh -huh. And I think if you're willing to acknowledge that God is real, then you can see yourself as being a part of the solution instead of as as contributing to an overall problem. None yeah. of those things have been done at the behest of Christ. No, right. Jesus never asked yeah. us to go and make holy war against anyone. So, and and yeah. I think that acknowledgement of God is really important. That you didn't, you never told me that you yeah. didn't believe in God. You just said that you didn't like how mm -hmm. the people of God behaved. And if that's true, then. Let's look at the, the Bible yep. and sit down and talk about this and how should they behave. Yeah. That makes two of us. I'm not a big fan of how Christians behave either. <laughs> I mean, some sometimes yeah. I can look back at my own life. I haven't always been a big fan of how I behaved as a yeah. Christian. Exactly right. That's exactly right. All right. So yeah. someone confesses to you that they have trouble worshiping beside brethren who don't agree with them politically. They cite all the issues of ungodliness with the other party. And again, we're going to withhold parties because I've seen people on both sides of the aisle do this. They cite all the issues of ungodliness with the other party and say candidly, how can you be a Christian and support that? How do you answer them knowing that you have other brethren in the congregation that feel exactly the opposite? The first thing they need to do is go talk to that person. If there's an issue they have with that person's political issues, then they need to go. I mean, it's not... It's not as if somebody who identifies as a Christian and a Democrat is unaware of the abortion platform, but it should be noted that Republicans usually are aware of, you know, some of the warmongering that has been done in the name of, you know, invasions and things like that. So, I mean, there's blame on both sides, and I'm very, very, very much against abortion, but I'm also against genocide and bombing entire cities for oil or whatever it is that, you know, they're accused of or any of that type of stuff. Sure. But I think they need to talk about it with each other. That's one of the situations I don't want to get involved in. But what I will tell everybody is that there is a real problem amongst Christians to see themselves as Republicans or Democrats first and then Christians second. And there's been several studies in recent years where the narrative around that has flipped to where it used to be, I'm a Christian and this governs my, my political beliefs. Now it's, I'm a Democrat or Republican or Libertarian, and that governs the way I approach Christianity. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be a shift between people who, who identify as one or the other, or the third or fourth, to see yourself as a kingdom citizen first. And it's entirely possible. I know it's, I know it's crazy to think about, but it's entirely possible to be a loyal member of a certain political party and not hold to every single part of that political mm -hmm. party. I mean, show me a Republican and Democrat that honestly embraces every single yeah. platform, part of their platform. You, you don't. Anyone that's honest, they don't. I, so it, it's just, it's a non-question in my opinion, but I understand why you asked it because it's a, it's a very much a dividing thing. I mean, it, as if COVID wasn't bad enough, let's just throw a 2020 political election inside of it with one of the most polarizing candidates in history. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the yeah. thing that I might add to that is that the more the more political that we become and the more active we become for any one party, the more we need to realize that we own everything that party does. If, if I'm going to go out there and tell you yeah. that candidate X for party R or candidate Z for mm -hmm. party D is the best candidate and I'm going to put out the propaganda and I'm going to put out the rhetoric and I'm going to, share the articles that put my candidate in a good light and, and your candidate in a bad light, 
mm-hmm. then I'm doing much more at that point than voting for that person. I, I'm taking ownership oh, yeah. of that platform. And, and that may be why the best answer is just not to get involved. And But your answer yeah. for how to deal with that is, yeah, you two, you're brothers in Christ first. And if you're allowing your political mm-hmm. affiliations to determine the the positions you're going to hold when it comes to faith and religion, then you get the cart before the horse. Mm-hmm. And you need to reverse those yeah, things. Totally. You need to figure out how to be a Christian first and then figure out how yeah. you align politically. But, yeah. or if you align at all politically. But I've just, I put this out mm-hmm. there to my to my listeners. The more that we step out there and we and we compel others to engage in this process, the more we own the outcome of it. And yeah. because you're not just saying, yeah, this is the person I want. You're, you're yeah. contributing your voice to which side wins in a very persuasive way. Yeah. And honestly, Brady, yeah. that's one of the reasons why I don't involve myself in politics at all anymore is because I don't yeah. see any of them that I can go out there and say, yeah, I'm going to persuade you to vote for this person because there's every one of them's got flaws yeah. and every one of them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm not going to ever, after somebody's elected, try to persuade somebody to, to be an insurrection or rebellion or to speak out against the government. Yeah. There's no reason to do that. That's not what we're called to do. And that is the opposite of letting our light shine. The minute I do that as a preacher in particular, yeah. I alienate 50% of the people in the world. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say is I'm politically agnostic for a reason. And that's that the gospel divides enough people. I don't need to throw, you know, political flames on top of it. I do think that what, what I really, what really bothers me is that when somebody's preferred political candidate is in office, they think that they, they can do no wrong. Yeah. And then when the other person is in charge, then they can't do mm-hmm. any right. And there have, every politician that we've had for the last 20 years, every president, I found a lot of things that i Liked about him, found a lot of things I didn't like about him. All right, so last question. Last of these rapid-fire questions. <laughs> so, uh, you ever notice how these are not very rapid-fire at all? It's everybody's right. favorite section, though. A, a family mm-hmm. says they don't really see the need to assemble anymore. They've mm-hmm. learned from COVID that they can just do church at home, or maybe they'll just get a couple of families together that they really like because it's too big of an inconvenience to drive to the worship mm-hmm. service. What yeah. are you going to say to the father of that family to try to connect with him? And what would you say to an eldership that maybe has several families that are struggling with this line of thinking? The very first thing that I would say to an eldership is that those are very valid concerns. You know, I, I'm big into the digital world, internet world, but even I recognize the fact that there's no way a virtual service will replace an in-person service. It just yeah. can't be done. The thing that I would say to a dad is, what, let's just assume that they can handle it. Your kids can't. Your kids need to have their friend circle intact. They need to see other adults. They need to see other adults care about God. They don't need to just, they don't need to just, quote, worship online. They need to interact with Christians because that's where their opinions are going to be formed. I mean, I'll be the first person to tell you that what I do in the pulpit pales in comparison to what is done in the pews and it was done in homes. And you need to, you, part of being the spiritual leader means giving your kids the best spiritual education that can come. And if that involves you getting in your car and driving an hour each way to go to services so they can interact with kids in a Bible class and interact with other humans and see worship around them, then why would you not make that? I mean, what are you going to do with that hour on a Sunday morning anyways? Are you going to go golf? I mean, what, it, it, nothing is more infuriating than when people undermine the in-person worship service. You know, I, whether you have one service, 12 services, it doesn't matter. When, you're, when your tribe is getting together, you need to be there. And they would never make that argument about anything else. They would never say, you know, I'm a big baseball fan. Nobody would ever say, oh, that season during COVID where we had paper mache fans inside the stands and they pumped in audio clapping into the speakers. That was so much better than going to a baseball game. I mean, are you kidding me? Nobody in their right mind would, would say that. And so for somebody to say that about the church and worship service, all that tells me is that you don't really want to be there in the first place. You know, all these virtual services have done is give people a reason to do what they were going to do anyways, which is usually stay home. 
And now you just can do it under the guise of fulfilling your obligation, which tell me a more pathetic term when it comes to worship than yeah. that, that you're just fulfilling your obligation. Well, I've yep. kept you for enough time today. I know you got a you got a paper mache <laughs> volcano to go build, and I know I know that's you're right. Excited. I'm excited about and, it. And I, I think your flu medicine <laughs> may be wearing off. I heard some coughing going on, and you've yeah. got a brisket to eat. So I'm kind of jealous. I didn't get to smoke. That's much right. Food. So eat a little extra for me. It looks like you could use a little meat on your bones. But thank you for being here. Anything you want to say to the audience today before you before you check out? No, I think the I think the main thing is. Keep your eyes open to to all the world around you for opportunities. We on their front, on the front of our website, my digital evangelism is the quote from John four, where he says, "Look up your eyes and behold the the field is white mm -hmm. for harvest." You know, it at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter whether you evangelize online or in person or both or through virtual reality or whatever, or you do it through letters. It, the only thing is, is that if you open your eyes to the opportunities around you, you'll be amazed at how you can spread the gospel and how you can build other people up. And the worst thing that we need to do is just say, well, people don't care about the gospel because the moment we say that, the moment we're waving the white flag and we're just on autopilot. So keep your eyes open, use the situations around you and find ways to not only grow yourself, but grow the kingdom and you won't be disappointed. Yeah. And so Brady, thank you for yep. bringing that. I really appreciate you being mm -hmm. here. I know the audience appreciates you being here. I enjoyed our time together, buddy. I wish we had more time to do stuff like this. And I'm looking forward yeah. to your to your virtual Bible summit. I yeah. think it's going to be a lot of fun yeah. from all of us here at Man Up, yeah, me too. from my guests, from Brady in particular today, uh, all of us here at Man Up, to all of you out there, have a good day. God bless and man up. Dismissed!